in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. <coughs> Excuse me. I'll be reading Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. And having said this, He breathed His last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, again, this morning, because we're here and because we're in this text, would You teach each and every one of us more so what Paul means when he says, I would know nothing among you except Christ crucified. May we know that above everything else, marriages, families, businesses, work, play, that this is the reason that anything exists outside of you. Do this to the glory of the name of your eternal Son, Jesus, our Father. Amen. At the beginning of our text this morning, by this point, Jesus has been nailed to these pieces of wood now for three hours while gasping for air as he had to push up with his legs and pull with his arms to open his chest cavity and draw in air and back down again and up and down. And when Jesus arrived on this little hill called Golgotha, He refused to take the narcotic drink that was offered to Him because He was set to endure this purposed suffering with full consciousness. Jesus could have avoided all that we've been seeing here for weeks. This <coughs> horrific torture if it would have been the Father's will for Him to avoid it. 
Remember the night before. Father, if it is Your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not, not my temporal desire at this moment, but Your will be done. And at the arrest, He had to tell His disciples, put away your swords. Don't you know I could call 10,000 angels right now and put a stop to everything that's beginning to transpire. So when He got to the hill, He did not take the drugs in order to numb the pain and to numb His mind. This was the most authentic human being Ever. He did not have the taint and numbing effects of a sinful nature. He had a self-awareness and a self-consciousness which is, which is by definition needed in order to suffer. The difference between we humans and animals. He had a self-consciousness that was unmatched which meant the intensity of His suffering was all the more. Not to mention that here, this day, He is receiving the sins of all who will be saved upon His person. And so in our text, it's twelve noon And something happened. Look at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. What Luke means by that is it's twelve noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., while the sun's light failed. This was a sovereign providential sign. Now, whether God used dark, gloomy clouds or a real thick fog or whether He used hot, dry dust from Africa, which would happen and it was called a Sirocco in that era, we don't know. But we do know this. It's not an accident. The question is, what is that about? Well, the Old Testament used darkness as a sign of lamenting, mourning, for woe is coming. The prophet Amos, for example, he foretold that there would be darkness at the time of the day of the Lord. In Amos chapter 8, verses 8-9, to we read, And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the lamenting for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. The prophet Zephaniah. In Zephaniah 1.15 we read, A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress 
and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And so what we see here is that at the cross of God the Son, it was covered with a strange, weird, unexpected darkness. It was a cosmic sign of the darkness of sin being poured out on the human soul of Jesus. God deemed this unexpected darkness to be appropriate as a sign of what's happening here. As a sign of the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 as Jesus hangs. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But, He was wounded for our transgressions and He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Later, as an older man, Peter will proclaim, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By Jesus' wounds, we are healed. And so what we have been seeing here in the suffering of Jesus for weeks now, you got to get it. This would not have been necessary if God were not just. But don't ever minimize that if God were not loving, then He would not have willed for His Son to suffer and to die and to receive all of the horrific sin of those who would be saved upon His person, His humanity, His body from the Father's hand. 
He hung there from 9 a.m. to 12 noon. And darkness came. God is just. You've got to feel what's happening here. You know, the movie is coming out in a few weeks about Noah. God wiped out every human being on the planet. Except for, what is it, seven? Eight? Thank you. And He did no wrong. His justice went forth. You've got to feel it. When God looks at a Christian killing man named Saul of Tarsus, or when He looks at a captain of a slave trading ship in the late 1700's named John Newton, or when He looks at you or me, His holiness, His justice has a perfect response to everybody who has fallen short of the glory of God. To every one of us who has thumbed our nose at the Creator saying, you're not really that great. I will not depend on you. He has a perfectly just, perfectly holy response. And it is called wrath. That is God's, the Creator's, relationship with us sinners. Us guilty, condemned criminals who are awaiting eternal judgment. Got to feel it. For the cross doesn't make any sense. Okay? Now, here we're back on Golgotha. The darkness has come. On the cross, God took His wrathful disposition toward us sinners and viewed His own Son that way. And released His appropriate punishment and wrath for sinners Onto His Son. And that is why at about 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi! Eloi lama sabachthani! Which means, My God! My God, why... Have you forsaken me? And that's what Paul means when he writes later in Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And those who come to believe are justified, made right with God 
by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put on the cross. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by Jesus' blood. That's why Paul will write in Romans 5, Since therefore we Christians have now been justified by Jesus' blood, much more shall we, on that coming day of judgment, much more shall we be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. And so, wave after wave of our sin was poured onto the human soul by the reckoning of the Godhead. In these sky-darkened three hours, Jesus' soul recoiled is all of our God-belittling antics of murder and arrogance and covetousness and adultery and autonomy and sexual immorality. And all of it was poured Upon His perfect human righteousness. And the Father turned away. He turned His fellowship away from the humanity of His Son. And abandoned Him. And abandoning him to that horrific result of sin called death. And that's why Paul will write in Galatians 3, verse 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law that we all deserve. How He did it by Jesus becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on pieces of wood. Tree. He was cursed. As our sins were reckoned or considered by God the Father to be His, though they weren't. Jesus bore our sins and their penalty, and He did it in perfect awareness. The awareness of a human soul and a human mind and human emotions that are utterly untainted by the effects of the fall. 
And after having cried out on the cross, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? In the curtain over there in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. It's probably close to 3 p.m. This happened right around the death of Jesus according to Matthew's account. This curtain referred to was at least an inch thick and made of yarn from Babylon and red and white and purple. And it was this curtain, there are numbers of curtains in the temple, dividing off the differing rooms as you get closer and closer where the people can come. You can come no further. Only the priest can come in over here and offer the sacrifices. And then you get to the, 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 the holy place with the incense and there's curtain. Only priests are going in there. But then there is the last, the inner sanctuary called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant from Moses' day with the cherubim and the mercy seat on top were. And this big, thick curtain was there so no one could look and see in there. And only one person went in there, the high priest. And only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he did not go in there without shed blood for himself and blood for all the people. That curtain was torn in two. Another sign. You've got to get the picture. The same Creator, the same God who brought the ten plagues upon Egypt in delivering His people, The same God who miraculously parted the Red Sea is the same God who orchestrated the bloody, brutal death of His eternal Son who became one of us. Three hours in the morning on the cross and then a strange darkness and the sun did not break through. It is weird. It's unusual. And as Jesus hangs there, He could see over the wall of Jerusalem. And the Temple Mount is at the high part. He could see the Temple Mount. You could hear the festivities and the celebrations still going on. And Jesus knows this day, right over there, all kinds of people are still looking for Him. They're waiting for Jesus to show up in the temple courts and teach again, as He's been doing every morning and every day for a week. The news of His execution has not spread yet throughout all of Jerusalem, much to Pilate's and Caiaphas' delight because they still feared 
a riot if, if many of His disciples and followers and the crowds found out about this very early morning mock trial and murder of the popular preacher. Jesus, He knows all this. And then He says, I'm thirsty. He does get a taste of the wine. Probably burns. It's about finished. God, however He did it, tore that one instant curtain from the top to the bottom. This was another sign of the coming destruction of the temple. The judgment had begun. But more than that, it was the opening up of the access to the Father for all sinners who would come through Jesus. Whether they be a Jew or a Gentile. Listen to the words of the writer to the Hebrews. In chapter 10, starting with verse 19, he writes, Therefore, brothers, Christians, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new in the living way that He opened for us through the curtain. That is, through His flesh. And since we have a great High Priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart a full assurance faith or he writes in chapter 6, we have this as a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul. It is a, a hope that enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. The curtain is torn in two. The temple, animal sacrifices are being abolished. It's over. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Now, when we take all four Gospels together, it reveals that during this dark three hours, Jesus uttered five statements during that time from the cross. 
The first was when, and you do remember if you've been here, he's not way up there on a cross like some movies put. His head is probably eight to nine feet, just right there. And so the first statement was when he looks down at his mom and the Apostle John, and John later writes it this way for us in chapter 19, but standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother and His mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved, John, standing nearby, Jesus said to His mom, Woman, right there beside you is your son. And then he said to John, John, look, your mother. And then John says this. And from that hour, the disciple himself took her to his own home. That was the first utterance during that time. The second was the cry which is actually also a quotation of Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? The third saying is after hours and hours of dehydration, He said, I'm thirsty. He's very human. Maybe you got a little taste of liquid wine. The fourth was right before he died, as John lets us know, when he uttered the words, It is finished! And the final cry from the cross is right there in our text, in verse 46. Then, Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. And having said this, He breathed His last. And even though Luke is obviously aware of all the other sayings during that afternoon he, that he does not record for us, I think it's probably because he really wanted this statement of Jesus to impress upon the minds and the hearts of his readers. This prayer, into your hands, Yahweh, I commend, I commit my life, my spirit. It was a very common prayer in Judaism in the first century. As I lay me down to sleep, into your hands my soul to keep, and if I awake. It's that kind of a very common prayer that was drawn from Psalm 31, verse 5, where David prayed it. And David prayed it into, into your hands, God, I. 
commend and commit my spirit to you, meaning, for David, save me from death here. And now Jesus takes this. And His utterance of this prayer is this mind-boggling trust of this human being of into your hands, not save me from death, but in my dying, I commit my spirit to you. But Jesus added something to this prayer that was unprecedented. No first century Jew would have ever included the first word. Father, he said in Aramaic, Baba, into your hands I commit myself in death. You're trustworthy here. Father, no one prayed that way until Jesus came. That intimate Abba Father was at the core of Jesus' human life. From the very first recorded words we have of Him at age 12. Why were you looking for Me? Don't you know I have to be in My Father's house? Ten thousand times in the first three decades of His life did this Boy, teenager, young man, get alone. Pray, Father, Abba. And at his baptism, oh, it's implicit there when the voice comes from heaven. This one is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Teach us to pray, Jesus. I will. Start it with this word. Father of us. English. Our Father in Heaven. in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before, when He is absolutely coming to terms with His Father. There is no other way. I will follow Your will to the cross. He begins it over and over that night with, Father, if if it's Your will, remove this cup. But nevertheless, since it's not 
your will be done. The very first word He uttered from the cross was, Father, forgive them. And now, it is part of His last words right before His death. You talk about a model of trusting in God the Father at death. In total dependence into His trustworthy hands. Abba! Into Your care at My death. That is submission. But I want you to notice one last thing about it in the text. That this extremely weak, tortured, bleeding, within moments or minutes about to die did not say, Father, He didn't whisper it. Look at the text. Verse 46. Luke tells us, Then Jesus, calling out with a Loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and died. That was a shout of victory. Luke is telling us this was a triumphal cry. Along with John, in the words, it is finished! I'm dying! It's not right for human beings to die. It's not right, it's not natural for a human being to be separated from the physicality of the humanness the right to be unclothed. It is because of sin that it happens. But nevertheless, as our leader, He says, I can entrust my spirit to you until that day. Till Sunday morning. Jesus has accomplished the work He was sent to do, as Paul writes, for our sake. God made Jesus to be sin. The One who knew no sin. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of the great exchange of the Gospel happened 
Jesus in his entire humanity in the womb into this last moment of darkness. He never sinned. And yet, God thought it appropriate to take my sin and His sins that put Him on a cross and say, I'm going to punish their sin by punishing my sinless Son. And you've got to get the Gospel. Because God didn't make Jesus a sinner in His soul. He never sinned. He imputed our sin. He considered, He reckoned, injustice has to be done to the full and it will take none other than God becoming a human being. And I would take their sin and appropriately deal with it. in the One who never sinned. And He also looks at wretched sinners like a Christian killing Saul of Tarsus or any of us in here who believe. And He says, as My Son never sinned, but took your place, you never committed one act of pure righteousness even since your new birth. But the Gospel is this one human life of My Son lived in perfect obedience. And I look at you, if you're a believer, only as I look at My Son's life. Stop waking up if you're a believer thinking, I did good. Therefore, God is happy and in fellowship with me today. I will know nothing among you except the great exchange at the cross of the crucified Christ. That's the core of the Gospel. And so no wonder the Apostle Paul can write in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the Gospel. As kooky as the Gospel sounds. And it is kooky. God who created us became a human being so that what we have seen now for weeks in the trial and the crucifixion, that, that He would literally die. That it took that really... It is kooky. And let the light of the gospel of the glory of God by God shines upon your heart. I am not ashamed of this gospel because it, and it alone, is the power of God unto salvation. And then, Jesus breathed His last. And his body went limp. 
and his head fell. He was dead. And read on. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. This centurion, this is the guy who was in charge of the gang and the crucifixion here. He's a centurion. He was over 100 men. You hear the word century? What's going on? He's been here all day from marching him out. He was on the road. He heard Jesus turn and speak to the women of Jerusalem. Don't weep for me. Wait for yourselves and what's coming. And at the cross, after they finally pinned Him there, He he saw Jesus look at Him and His buddies and then say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He's right there this whole day. He's got to guard the cross. He hears Jesus say to that other guy on a cross, thief, promised him that he's going to be in paradise with him that day. He was there to witness this ominous, weird, omen-like darkness for three hours. He heard Jesus' triumphant cries from the cross. And he witnessed His control, calm, giving up His life the last. And something hit this guy spiritually. This man was dikaios, the word, just, innocent. In other words, he was executed unjustly. And this is a theme throughout Luke. If you've been picking up through the trials and everything, Luke is showing every testimony going on with this whole thing with Jesus. Through every trial, the testimony keeps coming forth. I find no guilt in this man. And look at verse 48. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, all day long here, returned home beating their breasts. By the end of this long day, what Luke is saying is this. The crowds are questioning the wisdom and the justice of many of them cheering on Jesus' death. And probably clearly, many were neutral or what is going on here? and weren't necessarily cheering it on, but as a whole, there were those who were doing it. But by the end of all of these happenings and signs, the crowds went away mourning, lamenting. That's what's meant by the phrase beating their breasts. Not victory. It's the same idiom that Jesus used in the parable in Luke 18. Remember the tax collector where He said, but the tax collector 
standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. This is true humility. But, what? Beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Luke is letting us know that many of these in the crowd, as they were leaving, were lamenting, and thus they're becoming ripe for grace. I have no doubt that many of them were there five weeks later in the temple when Peter preached the resurrection on the day of Pentecost. And they were saved. And then Luke concludes our section by mentioning his desolated, discouraged followers. And all Jesus' acquaintances and the women who had followed Him from Galilee up north, 90 miles, part of His ministry, Some of these women supported His ministry. We saw earlier. They stood at a distance watching these things. These were His family and His friends and His devastated followers who would soon be proclaiming all over Jerusalem the great news of Jesus' resurrection. But they don't know that. Yeah. So, in these closing minutes then, let me address all of us. So just think if this is you, okay? If you are a sinner, here's my question to you. Have you been reconciled to God. By the death of Jesus Christ that we have been seeing. Here's how the New Testament puts it. If anyone is in Christ, He or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this happening in the life of those who become Christians is the work of God who, through Christ, reconciled us to Himself and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. And that is this. In Christ Jesus, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their sins against them. And thus entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. Paul writes, we implore you, 
be reconciled to God. Because for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. The one who did not ever sin. So that in Him, we who believe could become the very righteousness of God. Even though we're sinners. And so, God justly has much against sinners. And thus, God needs for something to happen so that He is reconciled to a sinner. In Christ is the only way He provides people to come through that curtain to Himself. So I ask, have you been reconciled? If not, I beg you, I implore you, on behalf of Jesus who died and rose from the dead on the third day, be reconciled to God. How? Believe what you've heard today. Believe it and throw yourself upon Him. Those of us who by God's grace have great confidence in having been reconciled to God through Jesus, this is what I want to say to all of us in your difficult weeks. Or easy weeks. Look Look daily to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He, Jesus, who endured the cross. How? For the joy that was set before Him in bringing you to the Father. That's why He did it. Look to Jesus, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross as He was despising the shame. And He is now raised and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Believer, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary in your life. In your struggle in this life against hell and high waters, you have not yet struggled against sin to the point of resisting it, to the point of shedding your blood like Christ. Here's the point. No matter what you're going through or will find yourself going through. Hear it. Jesus 
in what we have been seeing. Jesus has made God your Father. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, He said. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the Apostle John, who was there very close to the cross all day long, years later, he will write to every one of us who embrace Jesus these words he will write. See? Do you see it? What kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The eternal God, the Son, became one of us in order to bring us to Abba, the Father, in order that we will be experiencing the Father's love and care in mercy and pain and trial down here and then forever in the resurrection. Don't you know you could have found me in my Father's house? This is my beloved Son. My only Son in this way, with whom I'm well pleased. Father, not my will, but Yours be done. Father, forgive them. Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. Andrew, come here. Pray like this. Abba. Our Abba. In heaven. This intimate relationship is the core of a Christian's life. Abba. Father, the great, and I I don't use that lightly, I find him to be a great Christian thinker of the 20th and the early 21st century. J.I. Packer writes in, I think we still have some back there, in a great book. There are a few great books. This is one of them. A great book called Knowing God. He writes, quote, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as His Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls His worship and prayers 
in his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. So Paul will write, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you who've been born again, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So if you do not regularly, daily, alone, from your heart, pray, Father, Father, oh, Father, then something is broken in your Christianity. Trusting in Christ at its core means taking everything, everything to the Father in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, our Father. Our Father, You allow us to feel those words and cry those words because You have reconciled us through the death of Your Son. And You have brought the Gospel, the words of this glorious cross and resurrection of Your Son to us And You raised us from the dead by taking the very Spirit of Your eternal Son who became a human being and You have placed that very cry we have heard from the cross into the hearts of all of us who love You. And so Father, I, as a child representing Your children, we're desperate for You to teach us all the more how to depend, trust, to pray, to 
daily to the truth that you are Father. Who loves us in an unimaginably deep way that it took the death of your son.